0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. On today's archive edition, The Lemon Tree, a documentary which was produced to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the State of Israel and the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The documentary was first broadcast on Fresh Air one year ago. Last month, it received the prestigious Overseas Press Club Award for Best Radio Story on Foreign Affairs. On May 14th of 1948, David Ben-Gurion declared Israel's independence. The war began the next day. For many Jews, the creation of modern Israel meant a return from 2,000 years of exile and gave them a safe haven they lacked during the Holocaust. But the birth of the Jewish state, endorsed by a United Nations partition plan in November 1947, also meant dispossession for the Palestinians. 700,000 Palestinians fled their villages and towns during the fighting in 1948. For Israelis, it was the War of Independence, For Palestinians, it was the Nakba, or catastrophe. Today we consider the roots of the Arab-Israeli conflict in a deeply personal way, from two people who know no other home than the land they each claim. Our story comes from Homeland's Productions, producers of dozens of public radio documentaries from the U.S., Latin America, India, Bosnia, and the Middle East. Homeland's producer, Sandy Tolan, says the story is about an Arab, an Israeli, and an old lemon tree.
1: Bashir al-Hayri was six when his family fled the town of Ramleh in old Palestine. It was July 1948, two months after Britain's withdrawal from Palestine, Israel's declaration of statehood, and the beginning of the Arab-Israeli war. By July 1948, the balance of power had shifted toward the Jewish state. Israel launched an offensive to establish a corridor between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The Palestinian cities of Lod and Ramleh were in the line of that assault, and Bashir, six years old, suddenly found himself a refugee in the West Bank town of Ramallah. Three months later, Dalia Ashkenazi arrived in Israel from Bulgaria. Dalia was an infant. She was told she was the only one on the boat who didn't get sick. Dalia's family escaped the Holocaust like most Bulgarian Jews, yet nearly all of them, 50,000, moved as one to the new Jewish state. Dalia's family moved to Ramla, the town Bashir's family had fled. For 19 years, Bashir's family lived in exile in the West Bank. Dalia's went about making a new society. But after the Six Day War, many Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza were allowed to enter Israel to visit their old homeland. Bashir remembered his father's stories of the land of Palestine, the house in Ramleh, and the family's cherished lemon tree. And so one day in July 1967, Bashir found himself in an Israeli bus station in West Jerusalem. That's
2: where our story begins.
3: Everything at the station is cold and silent, the walls and the faces. I approach a mirror on the wall and have a look at myself, as if to make sure I was suited for the encounter, as if I were preparing to meet a lover. My cousin walked me for my thoughts. The bus is leaving.
4: Whenever I heard the language, it was a language that was filled with threat for me, the language of the enemy. We knew uh, there was a propaganda uh, against the so-called uh, Zionism, whatever that meant to the Arabs, trying to convince us that uh, Israel was not our place. The choice was either you go on your ships back to where you came from, or we push you into the sea. Some choice.
2: <laughs>
3: we were three, my two older cousins and me. Each of us chose a window seat, sitting in a row, one behind the other. We were filled with infinite
2: leaves. The
4: fear and the horror of it cannot be described. The Six-Day War was in '67, so I was 19, 20 years old. You know, you just felt completely entrapped. That's how we felt. And we were biting our nails, not knowing what, 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 what should we do now, you know, what, what?
3: the journey began it was a journey of expectations a journey of love and pain we devoured each scene that passed before our eyes who would have thought that would have entered our homeland as strangers
4: i will never forget it the fact that we couldn't be accepted here it was very clearly stated. And because we, who have just come out uh, from Europe, we had to take sick fantasies seriously. I had repeated dreams, night after night, as I was growing up, of uh, uh, Nazis in Israel, (laughs) you know, trying to round me and my family and my friends up. Wherever we escaped, they were there, If we went this alleyway, they they would come up this way, and if we came this alleyway, there was no way out.
2: Uh. We got off the bus, and at that moment,
3: memories came rushing back, as if 18 years had never passed. We were in our hometown, speaking our own language, walking freely down our old streets in
2: London
4: From time to time, I would ask my parents and uh, other people um, who were the people who lived in these Arab houses before and why did they uh, leave? And, uh, yeah, we were always told, yeah, people fled and left the boiling soup on the table, you know. So it sounded like some kind of a cowardly escape.
3: We were walking toward my house. I was confronting the unknown, lost in thought. How was I going to be received in that house? Who was going to be behind those closed doors?
4: And I sort of tried to imagine what what it is like to be so afraid that one would have to leave everything.
3: Have you ever seen a lover drawn with a hidden magic toward his shrine, pulled by an invisible power that is beyond his comprehension? That was my state when a voice came from my depths. This is my home.
4: And uh, I was uh, on a summer vacation from uh, the university, alone at home, my parents were working.
3: I was wary. Should I knock forcefully and risk intimidating the people inside or knock softly and risk that the people would not hear me? I looked for the bell. I found the bell. I pressed the bell.
4: And the doorbell of the big gate rang.
3: I was taking everything in. I looked at the walls of the house, the windows, the trees. I saw the flowering tree, it has beautiful scent, and the towering palm tree, taller than the house. And I saw the lemon tree. After a few seconds, I heard a voice in Hebrew saying, Kien Kien, which means yes.
4: And when I opened, I saw these three men with suits and ties in the summer of July in Israel.
3: (laughs) And I found myself face to face with a young woman In her 20s,
4: I saw them, and it was as if it was a revelation. I knew who they were. They were very wary and very shy, and they didn't know how they would be received. But it was like in a split second, it was like uh, as if I was always waiting for them.
3: I told her, I am the son of the man who owned the house who lived here before 1948, and I lived here too.
4: It is very strange, but I knew at that moment that it was like completing a puzzle. It was like the second part of an unfinished reality was there confronting me.
3: And I said,
2: is it possible
3: for me to come in and see the house?
4: and uh, I opened the door wide and I said yes to come in.
2: I said we haven't been
3: properly introduced. I am Bashir and these are my two cousins. She said, I am Dalia, and I study at Tel Aviv University. She entered, and I followed her, and we started going around the house. Every room I entered, I felt that I was entering a sacred place. I tried to touch everything, to take in everything, the walls, the doors, the ceiling, the windows, the floors, the colors, everything. She asked me, when you left, how old were you? I said, around six years old.
2: She said, I came here when I was one year old.
3: Where did you sleep? She asked me. Which was your room? And that conversation was taking place in the room where I slept when I was a child. And she said, this is where I sleep. This is my room.
4: My recollection is that Bashir said that this was the room where he was born. I became very self-conscious then that I put a poster on the wall that was then on the cover of Life magazine of a handsome officer in the Suez Canal with an Uzi, holding an Uzi in his hand, with a big smile, like saying, we've made it. And uh, I was at a time very proud of uh, this image, which was a symbol of uh, liberation and warding off a threat and uh, being alive. And uh, there was this poster over my bed, you know. I suddenly realized that they must be looking at this poster with very different eyes and very different feelings than I do.
3: We said goodbye, we gave her our address, and we invited her to visit us in Ramallah. We thanked her for her reception and her kindness. She said, you can come anytime. The house will be open for you. We went back to Ramallah by bus, carrying new burdens on our chests. And then Dahlia started visiting our house. She came unannounced. We were surprised when she entered the house. Of course I invited her, but we had not set a date.
4: When I came there, uh, it was an amazing experience. Because, you know, the whole family came and they looked at this uh, strange being. So it seemed to me you know, who was living in their home, and uh, this was uh, probably the first Israeli they ever saw. And uh, they brought all these uh, wonderful cookies and tea and coffee, and <laughs> I felt very uh, uh, safe and protected among them.
3: We sat and talked about politics, and religion, and literature. We talked about how we were dispossessed this about the unfolding of the Palestinian tragedy.
4: I said, okay, you know, I live in your home, and this is also my home, it's the only home I know, so what shall we do? You know, there was a problem of language, <laughs> and uh, Bashir spoke some English, so we started talking about my home, your home, And I I, I started expressing my understanding of their sense of exile through my longing to, to Zion, to Zion, to Israel.
3: They feel that a homeland means security. And outside this homeland, they are despised. But Palestine, geographically and demographically, is part of a bigger Arab world. It's in the middle of a sea of Arab culture. I used to tell her, "You dream of living on an isolated island where you can practice a pure Jewish life is like the fantasy of Robinson Crusoe. It's a fantasy. It's not real.
4: You see, sometimes we hear, um, yes, the state of Israel exists uh, just because of the Holocaust the only moral justification is the Holocaust and uh, <sighs> there are some very deep components it's not just memory it's the spiritual nourishment that comes from these memories because otherwise how can we understand the survival of the Jewish people against all odds,
3: you know? They build their yearnings and dreams on myth. We base our dreams on the bones of our ancestors, on our history here. It's difficult for us to understand how they see history with one eye. They don't look at the fact that they don't want to see. There are four million Palestinians living in exile. Why should they remain abroad? The solution is one secular, democratic state where everyone lives equally.
4: I felt that the two things were happening simultaneously. On the one hand, on the personal level, there was the establishment of a bond through a common fate and this was an amazing situation to be in, you know, everybody could feel the warmth and the the reality of here people are meeting and meeting the other and it was real and it was happening and on the other hand intellectually we were conversing of things that we couldn't see, possibly see how they, they seem totally mutually exclusive. That my life here is at their expense, and if uh, they want to realize their dream, it's at my expense.
3: I felt that with every conversation, with every dialogue we had, there was a change taking place in the way she was thinking about us.
4: And I felt that I was incredibly accepted. Just the very fact that I opened that door gave me a trust and a uh, gratitude that I cannot even express in words because I've never met such gratitude before. Just for the fact that I opened that door
0: We're listening to The Lemon Tree, a documentary from Homelands Productions. We'll continue after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Let's continue now with the documentary The Lemon Tree, a story from the Middle East.
1: At approximately five minutes to ten this morning, Jerusalem time... A bomb
3: exploded outside one wing of so the bomb We saw blood, wounded people, suffering, pain, dead people. These are some of the pictures that I can really remember.
1: Matthew Halton of the CBC in London says the British feel that the stage is set for a terrible and bloody civil war in the Holy Land. He reports from London. The Jews are confident and determined. They defy the whole Arab world. After I met
4: Bashir, I obviously wanted to know much more about '48. Uh, and um, a student at the university who was studying with me had participated in the '48 uh, war. And he told me about the expulsions from Ramla and Lod. He told me that, yes, they committed these expulsions by frightening the population and driving them out.
2: We took refuge in a nearby
3: house. Part of it was transformed into a mobile clinic. My uncle was a doctor, and they used to bring in wounded people. There
4: was the big uh, scandal of uh, Rabin's memoirs. The censorship in Israel had censored th- those parts in which he speaks of the expulsions from Ramleh and Lod, but of course, the book in its English version uh, came with a full account.
3: Safina <laughs> Amam Gish, we are faced with occupation troops. They demanded by force of arms we leave that house. That's
4: the house that we came to. It was in Ramla and, uh, and we lived in this Arab house which the state uh, took responsibility for and it was called abandoned property. Uh, uh, I'm laughing because it was not abandoned really. People were expelled but uh, it was a comfortable uh, <laughs> expression.
3: We moved along like human waves, packed in tight clusters, filled with fear and exhaustion, walking towards the unknown. We had a dignified life. The moment we lost our country, we lost everything.
0: We're listening to The Lemon Tree, a documentary from Homeland's Productions. The Lemon Tree will continue in the second half of our program. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Today we're presenting The Lemon Tree, a documentary which just won the Overseas Press Club Award for Best Radio Story on Foreign Affairs. The Lemon Tree is part of the World Views series from Homeland's Productions, featuring first-person documentary narratives exploring the personal stories beneath the surface of the news. Dahlia is an Israeli. Bashir is a Palestinian. Let's continue with their story. Here's producer Sandy Tolan. In
1: 1968 and 69, Bashir and his siblings continued to visit Dahlia in Ramleh, sharing lemon juice under the lemon tree. But Bashir's father couldn't bring himself to visit. He said he was afraid that if he got to the door of his old home, he'd die. Dahlia continued her visits to Bashir's family in the West Bank. Bashir recalls one visit when Dahlia began probing him about his family's longing for Palestine. Dalia said,
3: I have never seen people like you. You're strange. You don't just like your homeland. You adore your homeland. You adore the trees, you adore the fruits, you adore the earth, everything. I don't understand this attachment. I told her, I think I have an answer for that. I pointed to a lemon I had placed on the mantle. I asked her, do you remember our last visit to you four months ago? My brother asked for a lemon to bring to our father. This is the lemon fruit that you gave us. She said, what does this lemon mean to you? Why do you keep it for four months? I said, you are just telling me we are strange. I am telling you, for us, the lemon fruit is not just a fruit. This lemon is homeland. This lemon is rambling. This lemon is Palestine.
4: One day, um, Bashir's father came, and he was blind and old, and had to be, you know, really uh, supported when he walked. He uh, touched the stones of the house. And after touching the stones, he said to my father, there was a lemon tree in the garden, which I planted. Is it still alive? So my father, my father took him to, to the tree and uh, Ahmed stood there, he, he was crying silently. And my father took a bunch of lemons and uh, gave it to him. And later I heard from Bashir's mother That um, when he couldn't sleep at night, he would hold these lemons and walk up and down. And that they kept them for years. You know, they shriveled more and more and they kept them for years just there as something from the house. And a gift and a memory. And then came the big shock.
2: More outbursts of violence and bloodshed in the Middle East. In
4: 1969, you know, there was this explosion in a grand supermarket in Jerusalem. explosion in a Jerusalem supermarket. Explosives were put in a jam jar on the shelf and the supermarket they, they exploded and people were killed and wounded.
3: More on this from Michael Elkins in Jerusalem
1: were placed in the supermarket. The first which exploded consisted of four or five kilos of dynamite. The second, which did not explode and was found in a large tin used for storing sweets, was smaller, about two kilos of dynamite. It is, of course, natural that suspicion falls upon the Arabs and that the 150 persons, or perhaps more, who have been hauled in for investigation
4: are Arabs. The police officers would not say when the My father, place, Moshe, called me uh, one day and said, well, look what's in the papers. You know that Bashir is convicted uh, as having taken part in this. He was charged with being the liaison person between those who gave the explosives and those who put them in the jar. And um, as far as I know, it's an act attributed to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Well, Bashir is identified with this uh, movement. The person who appeared at my door, I've learned later, of course, uh, was an activist for the Popular Front. Anyways, after this, I, I, I felt so betrayed that all connections stopped with the family. He was in in jail anyway, so, but, uh, yeah, everything stopped. No contact.
3: There were false accusations, because if they had been able to prove them, I would have been sentenced to life in prison, not for 15 years.
4: I used to walk by the Ramla prison every day on my way to work and um, I w- was having thoughts whether I should go and check if Bashir was in that prison because it's a very large prison for long-term prisons. And I never did it. You think of it every day, you know. But yeah, I, w- I felt very betrayed and uh, it was too much for me.
3: I did not confess,
2: and they could not extract a
3: confession from me.
2: However, I am
3: Palestinian. I have always hated occupation. And I believe that I have the right to resist it by the means that are available to
2: me. Yes,
3: at one stage, the means were violent. But I understood them. I understood the actions of the Palestinian fighters who are ready to sacrifice themselves. I still understand that.
4: I believed he was guilty. I still believe so. And I would be the happiest person on earth to be uh, disabused of this notion. Indeed, I was for many years waiting for a letter saying, uh, I never did this, or a conversation. Uh, If I did this, I'm very, very sorry, but I never received such a letter. But I am his friend, yes? Am I his friend or not? If I'm his friend, he can tell me frankly, I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. And yet, he belongs to an organization which puts it on its agenda to destroy Israel also through terror actions, so-called armed struggle. Bombing buses and so on, where also Palestinians are, and also Palestinian children can be because terror is indiscriminate. And I can be on one of these buses
3: too. We have suffered many massacres. Dwaymi, Qasim, Deryasim, Shatila. In the face of all these massacres, dispossession, if anybody thought that a Palestinian would react like a Jesus Christ would have, He is wrong. If I didn't have this deep conviction to the bone marrow and the necessity of hating the occupation, I don't deserve to be a Palestinian. This feeling, political feeling, started at the age of six when we were expelled.
4: As a six-year-old, they were in Gaza where they had land and he was playing with a hand grenade. Mm.
3: And we were playing in the neighborhood with kids and we thought it was a toy. It was a bomb. It exploded in my hand.
4: And four of his fingers were blown out. Now, can you imagine the trauma of a six-year-old who is sure is playing with a toy, and it explodes in his hands? And he is sure the Zionists have put it there for, for him or for little children to be blown up. I mean, what kind of an impression does that leave on somebody's mind who later goes and participates in doing pretty much the same to other people?
3: Those were the gifts, the presence of the Zionist movement to the children of Palestine. If you just start playing with them, they explode.
4: I never saw his left hand. His left hand is always in his pocket. Have you seen his left hand? You've met him. No, you shook his right hand. You've never seen his left hand. His left hand is hidden, and it's hidden so well, you never know you've never seen it.
3: For me,
2: what
3: I lost in bones and flesh in Palestine made me more attached to Palestine. This is what I told them when they wanted to deport me. I said... You are only deporting parts of my body, but there are some parts of my body that you have no control over. It's already there, buried in Palestine, and I am coming back.
4: When Bashir wrote to me about his hand, I didn't know of this story, actually. I was quite uh, shocked. And I was also shocked that he expressed the, the conviction that this was left there against Palestinian children as toys that, to play with and to, to be exploded. I was, I, I was amazed at the intensity of his perception that Zionism was this incredibly evil uh, manifestation and that this was his experience. And I am a child of Zion. For me, Tsion means something very different than it means to him. For me, Tzion is the mountain of God. For me, it's an expression of my very ancient longing. For me, it's a word that symbolizes a harbor for my people and our collective expression here. And for him, it is, it's a regime of terror. That's what it is for him. Something that it's a... An obligation to fight and to resist in every possible way. Because if Zionism for him is a reign of terror, then terrorism is an appropriate answer. And I say that I cannot afford being on that point where you Fight one wrong with another wrong. It doesn't lead you anywhere.
0: We'll continue with the documentary The Lemon Tree in a moment. This is Fresh Air. Let's continue with The Lemon Tree, our story from the Middle East. It's produced by Sandy Tolan.
1: Bashir spent 15 years in prison for his alleged role in the bombing of the Jerusalem market. Dahlia lost touch with the family after cutting off all contact. But she kept thinking of Bashir and the house and their common fate.
4: Still, during all these uh, (laughs) 16 years, I was thinking of the... um, Tragedy of um, the vicious circle, pain, retaliation, pain, retaliation, it can go on and on, and uh, I also felt that this house belonged to a family, a whole family you know of uh, thirteen people. I felt a very deep need to acknowledge that so uh my mother died in uh, 77 and my father died in 85. I told Yecheskel, my husband, uh, yeah, what, what do you feel about searching out a family? So there was a, a meeting and I saw Bashir after all these years. So we uh, said, here is the house. How do you envision its uh, future? you know, we were open. We said we are ready to pay um, reparations, or how do you call it, compensation, for your loss of property, you know. And uh, we knew they couldn't live in the house by Israeli law. So um, if it's sold, you will get the, the, the money of it. And Bashir said no, no, no selling, and no, this is my patrimony and I don't...
2: uh...
3: And we agreed, according to my suggestion, to turn the house into a daycare center for Arab children.
4: I've done something very personal. I wanted to take responsibility for the suffering that my people has caused them. The Palestinian people. I believe that God is God of abundance and not God of scarcity, and therefore many things are possible.
2: Hello, welcome to the open house. Uh, Here's Bashir and Dalia's uh, house. This is where Bashir and Dalia lived. Different times. Uh, we are standing near the lemon tree. Uh, unfortunately, the lemon tree is dead. The lemon tree is now he's 65 years old and he's
4: dead the lemon tree died in the summer after uh, many years of uh, decline and the gardener warned us that the tree was going to die and said well this is the nature of things things just die on this planet you know and uh, and still it was such a surprise pain such a pain and uh, when when we saw it finally dead we, are, we have left the, the tree there, bare. And just yesterday, when I was there, I picked a shriveled lemon from the ground, and I'm, I'm keeping it. <laughs> uh, one of the last uh, falling, dried-up lemons that are falling off the branches. And uh, the tree will stand there as long as it can. It's, it stands there. Tr- trees die standing.
3: That tree was living in our hearts. And the lemon fruit is not just a fruit. It's a buried childhood in each of us. It is our memories. It is our compassion. It is our country.
4: And it is my dream that uh, with the al khairi family we can, when the time is right, we can plant a, a new sapling lemon tree together.
2: I <laughs> I had hoped that you
3: would not be the only dahlia.
2: I had hoped to live to see a forest of dahlias. And we had many expectations. I don't want to overburden you, dahlia. I know how sensitive you are.
3: I don't wish you any pain. All what I wish, Dalia, is for you to struggle with me, to reunite me with my palm. My palm that has blended with every grain of Palestinian
2: soil. I love my country, and you love your country, and I
4: love your country. and it is the same country and I have nowhere else to go and you have nowhere else to go so we are here and nobody will dream the other way and our enemy is the only partner we have
1: Post-script. A few months ago, Bashir's mother died in the West Bank town of Ramallah. Dahlia and her husband went to pay their respects. She hadn't seen Bashir in 10 years, since he'd been deported by the Israeli government for being an organizer of the Palestinian uprising or intifada. Bashir says if there were more Dahlia's willing to consider a Palestinian's right to return from exile, there could be a real and just peace. He still advocates one secular democratic state in all of old Palestine. Dalia says she won't be ready for that for quite a while, at least not until Bashir renounces the use of violence as a means of political change. As for the house in Ramla, it remains a daycare center for the Arab children of Israel and a place of encounter for Arabs and Jews.